You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir, and today we have with us Dr. Catherine Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is a postdoctoral fellow for the Digital Library of the Eastern Mediterranean at Harvard University. Her research focuses on the social history of print in 19th century Egypt, and she's preparing a book manuscript titled Print and the People of Cairo. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Nir. So many of our listeners might know that print in its different forms was never really quite present in the Ottoman Empire, that is, until the 19th century. Uh, And often, historians, researchers uh, of a previous generation have seen this as a sort of failure to innovate, a failure to adopt print from Europeans, and alongside that, uh, a set of social transformations. But today, what we're going to do is we're actually going to look both at the discourses around print, but also about one particular case which is the beginning of print and print culture in 19th century Cairo. So let's, Catherine, let's just start with this basic question. Just an overview for our listeners who might not know that much about printing in the Ottoman Empire. What were the experiments of printing in the early modern period, let's say pre-19th century? Sure. So um, taking print um, on its head as typography Mm -hmm. uh, within the Ottoman Empire Typography develops um, in the mid-15th century in Mainz. Gutenberg comes up with it around 1450. And around 1492 or so, when Jews are being expelled from Europe, Mm -hmm. they bring it with them to the Ottoman Empire. And from there, printing develops um, rather sporadically among religious minorities, um, including Christian groups who usually are printing in um, sort of places that are out of the way mm-hmm. um, in in the mountains of Kuzhaya, for example. And really, that's the state of play until the early 1700s uh, when Ibrahim Mutaferka, um, mm-hmm. who is a member of the Ottoman court, gets a privilege to print from sul- the Sultan ushering in a curious sort of hybrid form of private printing that's sort of condoned by the government, but right. is, is done within the Turkish language. And then beyond that, uh, Mutaferika's press goes out of business um, and the imperial court sort of acquires it after having left it um, dormant for, for several years. Hmm. And in the late 1700s um, begins printing sort of governmental mm-hmm. tracks. So you have uh, really these isolated cases of religious printing right. uh, of this you know sort of curious print for profit under Mutaferika mm-hmm. and then and then governmental printing. But but that's the extent of it. So the question that's always been um, sort of posed is why is it that you don't have sort of mass Muslim printing? Yeah. In Arabic. It comes with this presumption that we have until today that, you know, printing is, uh, in the words of uh, Elizabeth Eisenstein, you know, an agent of change that it brings along these social transformations. And that if only if only Arabs slash Muslims slash Ottomans had learned to 
uh, print or adopted the printing press, then these kind of social transformations of modernity would have occurred in the Ottoman Empire as well. Absolutely. So you you have this sort of foray into Ottoman printing history based very much on the the European um, paradigm where people are really hoping Mm -hmm. for uh, the scientific revolution or um, an Ottoman version of the the Protestant Reformation or or the Enlightenment. And the the flip side of that then becomes uh, what is very much the dominant sort of research agenda up up until recently, um, the sort of question of what is it that's keeping Muslim Ottomans from printing? What's, yeah. what's holding them back? So what are some of the reasons that people give to explain the failure to adopt print in the Ottoman Empire? So there are a lot of reasons, and, and they often don't <laughs> jive very uh, well together. And, you know, just taking a step Back, one, one of the problems here is that you can't ask the question of why did something not happen right. um, unless you have, you can't, you can ask that question, but you can't really answer it unless you have contemporary sources mm-hmm. um, so it's a counterfactual en- engaging with it. Yeah. It's, it's a counterfactual. So, so you have people saying things like um, there are um, copyists in the copyist guild taking mm-hmm. to the streets. You have people saying that Muslims really love handwriting and that they have this sort of aesthetic aversion um, to print. You have people saying that there's this um, Muslim aversion to um, printing because um, it, it comes from Christendom, that it's based in a metal object. Mm-hmm. The, the, the list sort of goes on, but it's always really vague as to what, what printing actually is and who, in fact, is objecting to it. If you think of printing as, um, you know, stamping with a signet ring, mm-hmm. for example, or, or minting coins, well... Um, Muslims were pretty big on printing for for quite a long uh, time. Um, So what you have here is a variety of explanations, some of them social or economic, saying, you know, the guilds basically oppose the printers because it would reduce their livelihood. You have others that are, quote unquote, religious, in which you have an assumption in which religion is against science. Therefore, you know, uh, Islam is against the printing of Quran. And then you have a variety of sort of aesthetic arguments as well. But that said, um, I mean, what when you talk about these contemporary sources, what 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 actually appears? What do we find in the sources in terms of are are there actually any bans on printing? Uh, what do people actually say about printing? Right. So so the the the, the point that you talk about um, that you bring up there with, about the ban that's one really great um, case in point. Uh, you have Europeans from the early modern era who are also really obsessed with this idea. Why are these guys not printing? Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, so far as I can tell, the, this idea that the Ottomans, sultans, um, specifically Bayezid II and Selim I at the end of the 15th century and then again um, in the early 16th century, that they banned printing. Mm. Uh, it, it comes about um, in this period. Um, but, but in fact, um, it, the way that you see that this band cycles through scholarship uh-huh. um, it becomes uh, quite clear that nobody really knows, and nobody's ever seen this band, and nobody knows quite what is being banned because it's like a scholarly game of, of telephone where mm-hmm. people talk about, you know, oh, uh, consuming printing is banned or uh, producing printings is bad, banned or only um, printing 
only only printing in Arabic or or Turkish scripts as opposed to to languages, you know, is banned, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, what you what you're saying is that there that these early modern European scholars are claiming that Bayezid the Second or Salim banned printing, but there is no no one's been able to find any firman or any sort of order that actually says that. It's kind of just uh, hearsay in a sense. Hearsay and and really, you know, an incredible game of uh, <laughs> of, of, of telephone that really cycles mm-hmm. through scholarship really up until the present day. I still see dissertations being published um, that, that cite this ban mm-hmm. as, as being sort of, a reason for why right. um, printing printing doesn't take off, and, and why you know the nineteenth century is, is sort of such a miracle. So what is by the contrast? F- mm. So what is the first mention of? I mean, do we if if we're just looking at it from a state centered perspective of let's say the state and its relation to printing? What is the first kind of example of uh, a state opinion about uh, printing? So um, in fifteen eighty eight, we have this first extant Fermon. That's um, produced by um, Sultan, and essentially, um, it's an intervention to protect European merchants who are trading in printings that originate in Europe mm. from having their merchandise stolen <laughs> without them being paid for it. So, so what we see is, you know, contrary to this idea of, of a ban. Um, the, the sultan is actually stepping in to protect these guys um, who are essentially being being robbed because their stuff is considered so valuable I and see. popular. Um, so these were these there were books, printed books, and then I think if I remember correctly, they would put the uh, this firman, a copy of a printed copy of it, in the back of the book within kind of bound together. In right. So so the firman itself it, it comes to us by way of. Um, a late 16th century European printing of Euclid's elements mm. that was designed to be distributed um, within the Ottoman Empire. And the printers, by way of protecting themselves, print the Furman um, at the back of the book mm. to essentially say, listen, <laughs> you know, we, we don't want these things stolen. And, and if they are, you know, you're going, you're going to be going against the, the word of the Sultan. And, it's then not for um, another 150 years or so in, until this Ib- Ibrahim Mutaferika mm-hmm. character um, acquires a, a printing press so, and, and writes um, for the Sultan, uh, writes an essay about the usefulness of printing mm-hmm. and writes the Sultan sort of for uh, permission to have the sort of privilege um, to, to print that we then get the port again weighing in. On print, and again, presumably being fine with it, having no problem. Yeah. So, so um, again, sort of citing print is is a really useful art. Um, it helps spread knowledge um, in in the face of sort of natural disasters that that books could otherwise encounter, mm-hmm. um, and and the um, sultan ends up. Before sort of um, writing up his firman, submits Mutaferika's request to the, the Sheikh al Islam, mm-hmm. who gives Mutaferika permission by way of a fatwa. And the only red line that, that's drawn is that Mutaferika is um, excluded from printing 
theological books. So mm-hmm. they, they don't state the Quran specifically, but sort of works regarding the, the religion um, is what he's not to print. But incidentally, uh, Mutafarika's own request to print sort of highlights that he won't right. be printing those books. Um, and, 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 and the Sheikh al-Islam says, providing that you have correctors in place mm-hmm. such that by producing thousands of copies of a book, you're not spreading thousands of copies of an error. Right. Um, go ahead. This is a very useful and beneficial thing. So it's essentially confirming um, what had been stated by the port at the, at the end of, of the 16th century. Mm-hmm. And yet, historiography presents Mutafarika's Furman as this amazing sort of about face uh-huh. in the imperial stance. Right. It's, uh, it's seen as kind of the court decides to go with modernity to take on this new technology. Ibrahim Mutafarika is this you know, recent con- con- convert from Unitarianism, comes to Ottoman court with this European technology and is trying to, you know, seduces the court elements. And this is the way the historiography goes. But what's clear from here that it's just kind of uh, they have a very almost utilitarian uh, approach to printing and that they're willing to kind of uh, use it in different contexts. Absolutely. And and the other thing that's really interesting is that the historiography frames this as, you know, a permission. Mm-hmm. This is, we're finally sort of bestowing permission upon you, Mutafarika, to, to do this because otherwise, you know, it's been banned and, and we've been against printing. Right. And in fact, you read the doc, you read the document and it's, it's, a permit. It's a, a privilege in in the sen- in the French sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, they're essentially giving Mutaferica a monopoly. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like a business license to, to go ahead and, and do this with their stamp of approval. Right. Mutaferica is now able to print with sort of governmental branding on mm-hmm. his side, and uh, just as we see with the Euclid book printed at the end uh, of the 16th century, Mutaferica then prints up his essay on the usefulness of printing, he prints up his um, imperial firman, mm-hmm. and he prints up the fatwa that he gets from the Sheikh al-Islam at the start of his book, along with several blurbs or takaris from mm-hmm. the most important sort of luminaries within <laughs> the empire at the time up front. And it, it's been said that he's doing this because what he's doing is so controversial that all the potential readers would, would just be, you know, sort of horrified to buy printings if if they didn't have um, the, this this clear sense of its licitness mm-hmm. put up front. But actually, sort of given given the, the wider context, my general sense is that he's he's just trying to position himself as the person to buy printed books from. Right. But at the end of the day, I mean, after attempting this uh, project, this printing press project, and uh, selling his books, he end up, he doesn't make any money, right? He goes out of business. He fails in that endeavor, ultimately. He, he ultimately fails um, in this endeavor. And um, the, the preeminent scholar of, of his press, whom I encourage everybody to, to read if they're, they're interested in this topic, is um, Orhan Sabev. And Orhan Sabev sort of concludes that, you know, no, actually he, judging by how much inventory he has left, he doesn't, he doesn't entirely um, fail because he seems to have sold more than he kept. Mm. But Sabah also <laughs> goes on to note in the, in the same piece that 
one copy of Mutafarika's book is valued at the same price of his horse. <laughs> so even if he's only holding, you know, a few of his printings, um, that's serious money <laughs> that's yeah. sort of tied up if it's if it's not for sale. So so my general sense is is yes, he um, he went belly up. <laughs> right. I mean, it reminds me like some you know I've encountered some of his books sent off to you know uh, random madrasa libraries in Lebanon or in Syria. You know, it's almost as if he just had to liquidate them, uh, and they kind of get sent off. Um, yeah, on the cheap. So there's still this question, maybe you do or do not have an answer to it, but why was why did he not try to print the religious books, the print you know, often these kind of catechismic books, uh tracts, polemics, things like that, that's what really I think in the European case fueled and may, uh, uh, gave the print industry profit. So why did he not attempt to jump into that uh into those topics? So so full disclosure, um yeah, I'm doing exactly what I'm always <laughs> fighting at everybody else's ankles for. This is purely conjecture. But um, at one level, you know, maybe he's, because he's a Unitarian convert mm-hmm. to Islam, he's not, you know, the best authority for producing thousands of copies of, um, you know, re- religious texts mm-hmm. for, for the first time. Um, at, at the other at the under, other end of the spectrum, spectrum, and this is not conjecture, um, the earliest writers on Ottoman printing, um, who are themselves Ottoman, mm-hmm. argue that printing is held back, and, and this is in the 19th century, by the way, argue that um, printing is held back by religious fanatics. Mm-hmm. Ashab adasib, in the mm-hmm. Arabic at least. And these guys, they say, are quite separate from the ulama, who themselves are really keen to have uh, religious books be printed so that they're sort of spread. Mm-hmm. Um, so who these fanatics are is is totally right. unclear to me. There aren't a lot of specifics about it. Um, but they might be the source of right. Mutafarika not printing these religious so, tracts. Okay, so I mean, we don't need, this is obviously a field uh, right for good inquiry and good research, uh, but I want to move on, which is, you know, you've kind of highlighted some of the failures of previous historiography and kind of, I think you set the record straight, uh, especially in regard to the Ottoman uh, government's attitude towards printing. But the there's a larger question here, which is, you know, if we're not going to focus on the failure to adopt print, you know, how sh- what research agenda should we take on? How should we approach this topic? Yeah, so so to me the the natural the natural question to ask is why print in the first place? Mm-hmm. If you have um, a society that is known for um, its production uh, of literature, has a very rich and vibrant manuscript right. tradition, why take up printing? And from there my sense is that um, scholars ought to do what they do really <laughs> with, with most things. You sort of highlight a particular place, a particular time, and you see how, how it is that, that people incorporate printing mm-hmm. into their manuscript output, where they're doing it, with what tools, what, what it is that they're thinking about it. So... My proposal is that we just, in a way, 
do away with this idea of sort of Ottoman printing or Muslim printing writ large. Because, of course, the empire is a massive place with lots of different um, people doing lots of, of different things for, mm-hmm. for different reasons. Welcome back to the Autumn History Podcast. I'm here. I'm Nir Shafir, and I'm speaking with Catherine Schwartz uh, on the history of print in 19th century Egypt. Now, Catherine, uh, before our musical break, we just left off with your call for a new agenda to study the history of printing, which is, you know, rather than talking about this grand world of uh, Islamic printing, uh, which is never uh, contextualized or localized, that we need to kind of look at specific cases of printing. And you've done so in your dissertation in your forthcoming book. Uh, And now we're going to jump into this question of printing in 19th century Cairo. So let's begin with that. Give us some, the basic narrative of what happened in Cairo how did printing come there? Well, so so printing printing in in Cairo is sort of the natural place to start because Cairo mm-hmm. is is the first Ottoman city to have a sustained and sort of lasting urban print culture. As with everything, um, the traditional narrative goes that that printing comes to Egypt with Napoleon. Right. Um, N- Napoleon brings sort of printing and civilization and the modern era generally to to the middle east if you're to believe the narrative and then and then from there um, around 1820 or so the governor of egypt mehmed ali ends up um, importing print technology from europe in order to support his um essentially restructuring mm-hmm. of um, the administrative fabric mm-hmm. um, and and frankly the daily lives of um, Egyptians and in the decades that that follow uh, more and more printing bubbles up such that again w- within the traditional narrative you have the Arabic Nahda or mm-hmm. you know, Renaissance um, where all of a sudden new types of, of, of writing, specifically Western types of writing, like um, the novel or newspapers start coming um, to the fore, and, and then you have developments like nationalism mm-hmm. sort of taking us into the, the 20th century from there. Thank you for that wonderful little overview of printing in Egypt. Uh, let's go back to Napoleon. You know, Maybe a few of our listeners have seen uh, these notices that Napoleon supposedly uh, printed, I mean, he did print them with the printing press he brought to Egypt and put them on the cities in the Levant and in Egypt of uh, that he was going to invade uh, as a kind of announcement of who he is and what he's doing in the Middle East. Uh, do we have any examples of from, you know, contemporary Egyptians about what they thought was occurring uh, with this printing press? And what did the French think that they were doing with this printing press? Yeah, so... Um when when Napo- the, the French invasion comes uh, to Egypt, Egyptians in fact learn of the French presence through these proclamations. Um, we have all of these accounts showing um, that um, the, the, the the French send these proclamations ahead of themselves to essentially warn people what's coming, right. and and that really sort of colors the Egyptian perception of these proclamations from 
henceforth. Napoleon says all of these sort of ridiculous things in them <laughs> that yeah. he's sort of, um, you know, the one who's going to really support the Muslim faith, um, <laughs> etc. Um, but but really, he uses them um, to suppress urban revolts and to repeatedly call for more and more taxation. So, uh-huh. so people don't take um, kindly to them. But what's so interesting is that um, the French, in their accounts of their bringing printing to Egypt, go on and on about how Egyptians are amazed at how civilized the French are and how they too could be civilized if only you know they they printed but when you read egyptian manuscript chronicles what's curious is that they they note that these things are are printed they they go in between sort of saying maktubat uh, and matbuat sort of mm-hmm. writings and printings um but they're not really bothered about the fact that they're printing right what they're amazed with and they say this over and over again are these crazy french people they're gluing papers up all over <laughs> the walls of our mosques and our, and our cities so so this very particular element of european print culture of, of actually sort of pasting documents in the streets this yeah. was really novel to them mm-hmm. um, and they're very struck by it and the the other thing that's sort of interesting with within the way that um, sort of the, the continual scholarship of um, Ottoman printing is portrayed is that scholars sort of jump from Napoleon to Mehmed Ali as though Napoleon leaves the printing presses in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, of, of course, in fact, he, he takes them... Uh, with him back uh, to... His army takes the, it with them with them uh, back to back to Europe. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's really sort of a pause um, in... In, in printing in, until uh, Mehmed Ali essentially capitalizes on the power vacuum left by Napoleon's departure and the Mamluks running mm-hmm. for their lives. Um, okay, so Nile and 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 acquires enough of a political and economic monopoly to buy um, printing presses from Europe. Okay, so now we've reached to Mehmed Ali. He's developed. You know, he's now decided to print. Uh, why does he do so, and what is he printing? Why is this important? Yeah, so 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 Mehmed Ali, um, again, he he is the first person in centuries to have a political and economic monopoly over Egypt. Egypt. Mm-hmm. He he's the the first one to do this, and and he uses his power to revamp the military. Um, because he himself sort of sees what he's up against by mm-hmm. way of European in- invasion via the French and, and the British who come in their stead, and and also by way of um, the Ottoman port, uh, who admittedly uh, don't choose Mehmed Ali mm-hmm. to to rule. So he he invests his energies into building up the military and building it up along. The, the most competitive mm-hmm. um, model that that he can find, which is this sort of European model. And so he brings in um, European scholars to train um, his newly conscripted army according to the sort of arts and sciences of, of contemporary military with regard to engineering and, and veterinary science, et cetera. So this is sort of the printing of textbooks mm. um, for people who are conscripted in into the military and, mm-hmm. and this is really the heart of Mehmed Ali's 
printing in in the 1820s until around 1828 when he prints uh, or his state prints its state gazette. Mm-hmm. Um, so a gazette is like a a list of laws that have been passed or. Yeah, more more or less, sort of government announcements mm-hmm. um, of of sort of what's going on, what people are 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 to be doing, what they are to be um, aware of. But here's the thing that's actually amazing. Okay, if you look at these gazettes, and I don't know how on earth this came to be, their formatting is identical to the French proclamations. Hmm. So even though the French have left, they've taken their presses with them. Somebody who's setting this type within Mehmed Ali's press um, is essentially saying this is what a governmental printing right. um, is 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 to look like. So there's this very sort of intentional engagement with um, previous exposure. Mm-hmm. But so there's a continuity of presumably technicians and aesthetics almost of of government printing. Right. So we know there are there are I know of at least two people who remain on staff between people who had served under the French in their presses mm-hmm. who are incorporated into Mehmed Ali's um, press on on staff. Um, but but there are likely more. But but there's certainly a sort of a, a continuity of of this idea of what printings are supposed to be mm-hmm. and and this idea of what printings are supposed to be in Egypt aren't based upon sort of European culture writ large but rather um, occupational right. European um, print culture now that's that's more or less the state of affairs until um, the late 1830s when Mehmed Ali does something totally remarkable and unique, and in my sense, my opinion um, is what really makes Egyptian printing pop. He, for some reason, invites members of the public mm. to come to the governmental presses with their own manuscripts and to themselves fund the printings of books that they want printed. So huh. this public participation with the presses so, is I'm- unprecedented. Oh, this is all. This is fascinating. But just a brief question, which is, uh, which we've uh, so far overlooked, which is just, what kind of printing is this? Is this lithographic or is this uh, block printing or so? So great question. Um, this is all typography, mm. and this is really interesting too. So Napoleon brings typographic printing with him mm-hmm. to Egypt. Typographic printing in Arabic is really cumbersome because of the cursive the nature yeah. of the script, mm-hmm. not to mention the, the ligature. Right. And uh, interestingly, when Mehmed Ali buys print technology from Europe, he purchases uh, typography, uh, typographical presses and lithographical ones. Hmm. Lithography is invented in 1798 and transfer paper, which... Uh, is used to sort of support the lithographic reproduction uh, of writing so that the text doesn't come out backwards, essentially, when it's printing, um, exists, well, it's written about from 1818 onwards, but it exists before before then in that sort of sweet spot. So Mehmed Ali could easily take advantage of lithography, but no, his his state chooses to essentially adopt um, the European standard for, for typography. Again, 
presumably under this idea of, you know, this is what printing mm-hmm. is supposed to look like. And they reserve, the Egyptians reserve lithography for the reproduction of um, diagrams hmm. in, in the backs of these, of these textbooks, really, for the most part. So let's go back to this interesting story about uh, the citizens, or let's say the subjects of Mehmet Ali. Subjects. Come... <laughs> They come to uh, the citadel where I presume these printing presses are and they have these manuscripts and they want them printed. I mean, so give us some examples. What do they want printed and why? So, in fact, uh, they go to the press at Bulak. Mm-hmm. There is there is a press um, at, at, at the citadel. That's the, the press that prints the State Gazette. I but the, the press at, at, at Bulak is sort of the designated print factory. Um, otherwise, sort of, Printing is initially sort of shoved into other um, institutions, mm-hmm. um, but but Bulak is the only designated uh, print factory. And frankly, um, the details of how the process unfolds are really hard um, to come by. My only access to them is through the state's printing of um, pamphlets, essentially mm. advertising uh, the availability of this. But um, they they would go and they could either choose from a list of uh, books that the government wanted to have printed <laughs> anyway and would very you know conveniently allow them to sort of pay for and assume the risk of um, you know either making profit from or not or they could present works of their choosing and um, the works that they do present um, really run the gamut but they for the most part, represent sort of classics from the the literary uh, canon. So, mm-hmm. in fact, you have Alpha Leila, where Leila's is mm-hmm. printed this way, and that's you know a huge success. But you you also have um, commentaries. Mm-hmm. Um, you have very sort of cute instances of people printing poetry that was written by their friend uh, <laughs> um, as, as, you know, perhaps so, an endorsement, but literature, literature. Mostly literature. Okay. And then they would take these copies and then they would be able to sell them. So and, they, right. they would make some sort of money out of this print market that they're slowly creating. So, so two things. One is the literature thing is a huge point because basically to the extent that the Bulak and the Egyptian state is, is printing literature as opposed to uh, you know, engineering part two. Right. Uh, literally, that's the name of a title. <laughs> one of these works. So, to the extent that the that the, the government is printing books that scholars actually want to read, scholars today actually want to read. Th- these are individuals, um, and and how are they how are they selling them? This yeah. is this is the wonderful thing. They are inserting them naturally into the manuscript market Mm. they they go to the booksellers of the booksellers guild and i presume the booksellers are doing this for sort of a small fee (laughs) so they can up 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 their prices um and indeed some of the great sort of commissioners on mehmed ali state presses are members of the booksellers guild because Mm. they have you know their finger on the pulse of, of what sort of the people want the the other side of this is that what does the government do with it's excess ver- excess copies of engineering part two right. um, and you know laws for um, farming <laughs> and agriculture in the same manuscript market just across the street from the booksellers guild it sets up 
a bookshop that sells only governmental printings, hmm. not those of the commissioners. Um, and and again, this is hugely important, both of these, these facets, because it's exposing regular people to print, mm-hmm. um, which is something that... You know, it's not really clear whether Mutaferika was able to do that or, you know, the members of the discrete religious groups who are printing liturgical texts right. earlier in the empire, whether they're disseminating sort of the, the canon or laws that people are expected to live by, if not sort of in, actively engage with. Mm-hmm. Well, this sounds fascinating. Um, so... I mean, at this point, it seems like we have a slowly evolving print, a market for print, engaging with the public, but this is still essentially, the, the press is our government run. Can we, where, where does, for instance, private printing houses uh, emerge? Right. So printing is still very much government run, and printing is also incredibly expensive right. on, on these governmental presses. Do you have any? Do you have any figures about how much it would cost to do a printing? Yeah, I do. So, um, so there's there's one there's one claim that an average um, book of about two hundred pages costs something like eighteen thousand piasters um, to print in a print run. If if I recall correctly, of something like five hundred or so. Mm. And the claim was that of that eighteen thousand piasters, the government took a, a cut of six thousand. Oh, well. The other issue is that of course you're hiring the government to do your printing. So if right. there's any problem You can't complain. Yeah. <laughs> nobody is going to sort of help you out. Whereas if you're if you're hiring a copyist to to make a text, you have recourse off of the basis of the of the sort of binding oath that yeah. that you make. So so crucially only the wealthy are um, printing. Only the clever of the wealthy are are printing enough so as to uh, enough copies so as to justify the mm-hmm. expense of of printing in the first place. You know, if you pay somebody to typeset a printing of say twenty of something, then that's not going to have been worth it at all. You should have gone to a manuscript copyist. Right. And only the super clever are printing enough of something that other people would want to purchase so so the point being that manuscript copying is alive and well uh, during during this period because mm-hmm. it's a much more reasonable option for those who are not rich enough or um, risky enough to speculate in in print but as far as um, private printing is concerned this starts to bubble up around the 1850s mm-hmm. Around the corner from Al-Azhar Mosque, right, right back along this, this sort of row of, of stationers and right. and booksellers, which are still around today, yeah, which are still around today. Exactly, the name of the street has changed, but it's it's still around today. And uh, these guys, curiously, print with lithography. Mm. So, even though one gets the sense that. It's cool and dignified to be, be using typography because that's what you know the imperial port is doing. That's what Mehmed Ali's state is doing. That's what the Europeans are doing. Um, they don't seem to sort of mind using lithography because that's what they have access to. And and frankly, lithography's limitations um, actually serve to their advantage. What are what are the limitations? So, um, for example, uh, print run with with 
printing, if you go to the trouble of setting printing typographically, if you go to the trouble of setting the type, uh, you can cast off impressions of maybe 250 to 400 mm-hmm. per hour at this time. Uh, whereas by contrast, lithographic stone, uh, the way lithography works is that you you write out a text on transfer paper, you then impress that you know, using water that repels mm-hmm. the grease of the writing onto a limestone, and then you put a fresh piece of paper on top of that, and that's to be the the printing. Well, that ink only lasts so long. Right. So by contrast, you can only get about a hundred um, impressions per hour, and compared to metal typefaces, you're not going to get many more than that anyway. So so that's one major um, trouble with lithography. The other major trouble is that if you spot an error. Yeah. With typefaces, you can just go and you lift that typeface and you insert the correct one or you flip it around to, to the proper direction. Uh, with lithography, you have to either show that you spotted the error by <laughs> sort of correcting it the same way that you would in a handwritten manuscript, or you have to totally recopy mm-hmm. the, the full, the full um, page. Or you have to tip in a fresh sort of insert, glue it on top <laughs> of, of, of um, the error. Mm-hmm. But these sort of limitations weren't in fact constraints for these guys because they were manuscript men producing mm-hmm. printings that should look like you know manuscripts to right. to a manuscript consumer and furthermore god forbid they printed 5000 of anything right they wouldn't <laughs> they wouldn't have money to eat ever again <laughs> so these are these are basically smaller private printing houses close to al-Azhar they want these kind of smaller runs of books uh, which they can presumably produce much more cheaply and much more quickly. Well, so the the verdict is still out on whether they're in fact printed printing houses. Mm. So I can't tell um, from the, the the information that I have about these guys. I'm collecting from the very printings that they produce. I see. Usually in the colophones at at the back of their text, they give a sense of you know who they are. They list their their names. They'll only eventually come up with um, stable press names um and they'll give their location and they'll sort of say why it is that that they're doing this um so it's y- unclear whether or not they have a brick and mortar um printing press mm-hmm. so when i'm following the names of these people uh you know there are a lot of familiar characters but they have lots of different sort of partners and and in fact some of them are also commissioning printings on the governmental hmm. press while they're while they're commissioning these these lithographies. So for all I know, they could be copying these these texts in in Azhar and and then in, taking impressions from them right. anywhere. So what you're saying is that it's not a, a printing house is in a company, uh, a, f- a firm with you know that's attempting to do business. That these are kind of individual printers uh, with some sort of lithographic press that are producing these small runs at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So that that only comes about um, in. Well, I'd say it's it's it solidifies in in the 1860s um, into the 1870s, actually having sort of a professionalized printing press. Mm. And the impetus for this change is <laughs> very much related to the government, um, because if you think about it, uh, you know these 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 lithographers they're they're working in lithography, but there's probably this sense that lithography um, isn't as reputable as typography hmm. they're they're clamoring for typefaces but where do you where do you 
get them? Where do you even get the money to get them? Yeah. Lo and behold, uh, the government press at Bulak closes um, for a, a period of um, a year or so. And the, the ruler, um, Saeed, descendant of Mehmet Ali, offers up the government's equipment for sale <laughs> to members of the public. And it's at this point that um, several of, of, of these sort of itinerant lithographic printers, I sort of refer to them as consortiums because I don't know what precisely they are, what to, what to call them. It's at this point that they buy typefaces mm. and they then start asserting themselves um, as sort of a physical um, press with the, with the proper name and and people with very fixed roles within that press you know you need the compositor um for right. example but but so this sort of story of um of, of private printing in egypt it's it's tied to the state in in right. this regard of, of of equipment and and it's important to note because a lot of people have sort of said that it's tied to the state insofar as the state is funding these guys yeah. or you know sort of funding their newspapers etc and that 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 is the case later on, but but in this earlier period, um, what we see is are people who are pretty much members of the elite in a way, insofar mm-hmm. as they're literate and they work to support the literate communities of Azhar, mm-hmm. who are um, upgrading by virtue of the government. They're members of the establishment. Right. So I think you've really told, given us a fascinating glimpse into these kind of multiple ecologies of print and manuscript in 19th century uh, Egypt. You know, one on one hand, you know, manuscripts are still circulating at the same time. There's lithographic works, there's typographic works, uh, you know, and the impetus for these endeavors comes both from the state, but also from private individuals. And I think you've really kind of fleshed out uh, this very vibrant world of books and printing uh, in 19th century Cairo. Um you know, unfortunately, there's so many more questions we'd like to explore, but we're kind of, we have to kind of wrap this podcast up. But I, so I want to move over to kind of this larger question, which is how, how should we understand this transition from manuscript to print? Uh, what, I mean, you know, we started the podcast with this discussion of printing press as an agent of change. You know, after all this research, after this kind of glimpse into 19th century printing in, in Egypt, what kind of narrative is this narrative still true? How should we understand this transformation? Yeah, so I mean, the printing press as as an agent of change is is the the old trope, and it presents printing as this disruptive force. And in fact, if you look about at it, we're not entirely sure. You know, scholars haven't pinned down what changes with print. Um, you know, what is disruptive? Uh, what what comes about as a result of it, and and similarly taking the case of of Cairo, Ottoman Cairo, uh, it's quite clear that printing isn't an agent of change. Mm-hmm. It's an agent of continuity. It's mm-hmm. an agent of um, tradition in in a lot of ways. You see uh, traditional sort of characters uh, from you know, the state or um, the religious establishment or um, 
members of, of, sort of guilds that are associated with techs who are incorporating printing into uh, their traditional mm-hmm. sort of aims and goals and and livelihoods. And I hope for the the history of um, sort of the future his, history of, of Ottoman printing that, that people really do sort of look at these particular cities, particular clusters of, of people get a sense of what is going on um, on, on the ground. And, and I predict that they'll probably find something similar. Mm-hmm. And instead of sort of rupture and, and disconnect, what we end up seeing is um, continuity. And the, the point of rupture that comes in, this is true of, of the European case and also the, the Ottoman case, the rupture that comes in is, is this rupture that is imposed later on um, by Ottomans and you know, Westerners alike who are trying to make sense of what printing does. Mm-hmm. So it's a discursive or narrative act later on in the 20th century that's kind of written onto the events of the 18th and 19th century. Exactly. And and you see actors in the late 19th century already um, sort of positioning themselves. Right. So I mean, and that's why I kind of I enjoy your research because it's it's giving us uh, a narrative of the 19th century that's not based off this kind of telos of modernity and the rupture of modernity that you really get to see kind of the development of of print emerging out of uh, the traditions and uh, desires of people who are constantly, you know, using manuscripts uh, and slowly moving into a print culture. In which manuscript survives, right, uh, and of, continue, of course, and thrives continue <laughs> until being today. used well until today. Yeah, uh, and you know, and I, it reminds me of kind of the the thriving uh, manuscript and even photocopier culture uh, in West Africa, in which people make. Uh, manuscript versions, take them to a photocopier, produce them, and then sell these quote-unquote market editions uh, throughout uh, West African uh, Arabic script uh, speaking, uh, Arabic script reading uh, countries. Well, uh, on that note, thank you for a wonderful uh, discussion, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me, Nir. It's been a pleasure. Um, For those listeners that would like to find out more, I encourage you to go to our website, where Catherine has generously provided a short bibliography of a few key sources you can find out more on your own. Uh, Also, we encourage you to check out our Facebook group. You'll find other like-minded listeners there. Um, And also check out the History of Science series in which this uh, podcast will be featured, uh, in which we explore kind of uh, the history of science, technology, and medicine in the Middle East from the medieval period onwards. So um, with that, until next time.